Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Bisa Butler in the expansion of a prominent American art museum. First up, the Art Institute of Chicago is showing Bisa Butler Portraits, a presentation of Butler's recent art along with some relevant works from the Art Institute's collection. The exhibition, which Chicago co-organized with the Katona Museum of Art, was curated by Erica Warren. It'll be on view in Chicago through April 19th next year. Butler is also included in the Toledo Museum of Art's Radical Tradition American Quilts and Social Change, which examines how artists and other makers have used quilts to address America's present and future between the Civil War era and the present. The exhibition was curated by Lauren Applebaum and will be on view through February 14th, 2021. Butler's work frequently addresses African diasporic history and the transit of textiles around the globe. Her work is in the collections of the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, the Minneapolis Institute of Art, the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art, and the Art Institute. Among her many group show credits is Plumline, Charles White, and the Contemporary at the California African American Museum, which I particularly enjoyed. On the second segment, Museum of Fine Arts Houston photography curator Malcolm Daniel. But first, Bisa Butler, after the break. Hi, everyone. I want to tell you about a new free app called Bloomberg Connects. It lets you access museums, galleries, and cultural spaces around the world anytime, anywhere. The app isn't just good for one exhibition or one institution, but instead takes a portfolio approach by offering access to many different cultural institutions through a single download. On Bloomberg Connects, you can discover new cultural partners, including some with which you might not be as familiar, creating exciting opportunities for you to find and consider ideas and interests across geographically disparate institutions. Bloomberg Connects currently has guides available for the Camden Arts Center, the Central Park Conservancy, the Drawing Center, the Frick Collection, the Guggenheim Museum, the Imperial War Museum Duxford, London Mithraeum Bloomberg Space, the New York Botanical Garden, the Noguchi Museum, and the Serpentine Galleries. Bloomberg Connects was created by Bloomberg Philanthropies as part of its ongoing support of cultural institutions. Its primary aim is to expand access to the arts and culture through the app. Download Bloomberg Connects today to access digital guides, hear from artists, curators, and experts, and to get the stories behind exhibitions. Take a virtual drive down Sunset and experience the iconic boulevard through the lens of artist Ed Ruscha. Featuring more than 65,000 photos taken between 1965 and 2007, this interactive online exhibition guides us from downtown L.A. to PCH, past sites like the Cinerama Dome, Roxy Theater, and Chateau Marmont. Watch the storefronts, billboards, and cars change over time. Search for a favorite neighborhood or landmark. Learn more and start driving at 12sunsets.getty.edu. This fall, Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents... Made in L.A. 2020, a version, in partnership with the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens. The fifth edition of the Biennial, which highlights artists working throughout greater Los Angeles, features new installations, videos, films, sculptures, performances, and paintings, many commissioned specifically for Made in L.A. The exhibition will show the 30 artists at both institutions, two versions that make up the whole. Made in L.A. 2020, a version, on view this fall at the Hammer and the Huntington. Find details and sign up for updates at hammer.ucla.edu and at huntington.org. And we're back. Bisa Butler, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. 
Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Tyler. I'm so happy to be here. Your undergrad degree is in painting, and I know it wasn't until roughly when you saw the Quilts of G's Bend exhibition at the Whitney that you pivoted toward working with textiles. So I think that some of the relationship a painter has to the canvas and laying paint down on it continues in your work now, even as you've pivoted to working in textiles. I guess I wonder first if you think that relationship is still there. Oh, definitely. When I was painting, I was always sort of interested in portraits. So I would be looking at, at the time, it would have been a live model in class because I did most of my painting in my undergrad experience. So I'd be sketching from a live model. Um, they used to frown upon us sketching from photographs because they said that they would come out too perfect. And also a photograph sort of flattens out a figure, unlike a sketch from a live human being. But I was still drawn to vintage photos and I still do the same thing. I preferred looking at black and white photos and making my sketch from that. And my sketch would be on canvas where now my sketch is just on paper because I'm I'm making like a pattern. And all of the lines that I would have eventually started filling out with paint I'm actually just filling out those shapes with fabric now. So the underlying structure of my work is still the same. One of the things about what you just said that interests me is I have in my notes that there's an unusual volume to your figures. You know, when they're when they're moving, you know, their dress is full of air, if you will. You know, it's full of three-dimensional presence. Do you hope that when people see your quilts that they read them as paintings, that they they recognize that there's a relationship between your textiles and the way they might receive a painting? I guess I never really thought about it that way. I think that the painting language is what I was taught. For instance, like I was taught my parents both spoke English, so I speak English. I didn't really think about it in the abstract like that. Painting and drawing was the only way that I knew how to express what I wanted to say. And then when I found fabric and the medium of quilting, it sort of enhanced and turned up the volume of what I was trying to say. And I know that people often do think that my artwork is a painting. I always put on my Instagram, you know, there's no paint on this. It's all fabric. So I know that my work looks like a painting from a distance. And the only way really that you can tell it's fabric is if you zoom in or if you're in real life standing in front of it, you have to get pretty close. There are a number of visual cues like horizon lines in many of your works. You know, there are, you know, in a work like Four Little Girls, September 15th, 1963, there is what feels like a horizon line exactly where it ought to be if an adult was looking down at you know, from an adult's eye height, if you will, at four children. And in some of your family portraits or, or portraits of four people who read as a family, there's a horizon line there too that stands in for the experience of a painting. One of the other painting cues that's in the work is that you manage to make stitching painterly. So take the broom jumpers, which is in the Chicago show. The hands are built from different colors of textile. And then you're stitching highlights or underlines or insurers 
that the surfaces pop. Is that something you started doing because it was painterly or am I, or, or have you thought of it a different way than I'm reading it? No, I think that it, I definitely was doing that to have the work, have the flow of a painting. And like when you were mentioning the volume before and creating depth, I'm looking at photographs and I'm looking at how the camera bends light and dark in order to convince me that this flat photograph is, is a three-dimensional object. So I'm always trying to use my, my skill that I learned in painting and drawing to like convince the viewer that this figure is three-dimensional. And that's definitely the, one of the magic or the tricks of painting, you know, fool the eye and give the illusion of depth. Having, like you said, the horizon line, it gives, or the way our eyes interpret that horizon line, it's like now there's a space and it gives the idea that you're looking at this figure, either looking down or looking straight ahead or looking up at the figure. So I'm trying to create like a field for them to exist in, even though I'm just using fabric. So I'm, I'm definitely, yeah, you're definitely seeing that right. But I'm trying to use all of those skills of composition, value, and layering to create this illusion that this is a person and they are somewhere. There are lines of stitched thread in, say, the hands in the broom jumpers where the, it seems like the color of the thread changes color as we move up the finger. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love that type of thread. It's just like, it's called variegated. And it's like this thread that it can have any color, any number of combinations. But one of my favorites, it goes from like blue to purple to bright lime green. And these are colors that I use in my work all the time. So, for instance, I, when I when I when I create an image of a hand with just all fabric, I can think about if the hand is primarily, let's say, the hand was blue, I could stitch it with just all blue threads and have the thread sort of just blend away into the hand. But I love to use the sewing machine like a painter would use a fine point brush. Like these are the things that I want to stand out. So maybe I would stitch that hand in threads of orange and yellow and red deliberately so that you see all the lines that I'm doing. And I can actually look at the photo and study it, look at the veins on the hand and the wrinkles on, on the knuckles and the nail beds and, and anything else that I might see, the knob on the wrist and outline all those things in that bright red, red and orange thread on that blue hand so that your eye can trace all of the work that I'm doing. And I often like to do that because I, I sew so much. Some of my, some of my pieces are kind of, they're more interesting sometimes on the back than they are on the front. And if I were to stitch with all matching threads, which is what most quilt makers might do, like a quilt for your bed, you want the thread to disappear while I'm doing the opposite of that. One of the other elements of your work that reminds me of painting is where you kind of, air quotes, put, put the viewer. You know, um, you, you generally put the viewer's eyes kind of in the shoulder of the tallest figure in your artwork so that we're, if, if it's an adult, so that we're, we're, we're slightly, ever so slightly looking up at that person. 
and that's a, a POV that recurs in work after work after work. So I'm sure it must be intentional. That reminds me a lot of Barkley Hendricks and kind of where he puts viewers. Was he important to you? Is he important to you? Absolutely. I am such a big fan of the African-American portraitists and figurative artists who've come before me. And the reason why I say African-American in particular is because I'm not just looking at what their artwork looks like, but I'm also looking at like, how did they do it? How did they live and thrive as artists? How did they have success? And like Barclay Hendricks, have recognition in their lifetime. So I'm looking at like the scope of that and as a plan for my life, I'll look at somebody like Barclay Hendricks or Charles White, one of my favorites, or Lois Jones, and I'll say, how did they do it? Where did they go to school? Who represented them? What museums were they in? And as far as the viewer looking up at the artwork, I like that idea, too, that some of my subjects may not have been people who were particularly exalted in their lifetime. I'm not even certain what respect factor they got, but though I didn't set out thinking like I'm going to reset how they're looked at because I have no idea how they were looked at, especially if I don't know the subject by name. I'm just thinking about how I look at them and what I'm getting from their photo is that this person is, is should be admired and I respect them. So I like the idea that they're kind of, and, and, and there's another thing though, that paternalistic view of looking at vintage photos of black people in the past who may or may not have had a lot of money, even their clothing might've been slightly raggedy, but, and I'm guilty of this too, but looking at the images and saying, Oh my gosh, like how hard their, my, their life must've been. And I feel so bad for them. And going through this process of, collecting vintage photos and spending time with them, I start realizing, like, I don't need to feel sorry for these people. I'm not in any better position than they are. And whether they're living or dead, like, it still doesn't put me in any higher elevation. So I'm trying to make sure that I'm giving, like, respect to the people who I consider, like, the ancestors or the elders, if, if they're only recently passed and acknowledging that they're doing me a favor in a way by allowing me to portray them because I've had experiences where I would make or try to make a portrait and it just doesn't work out. And then I have others that I'll have this like visceral electrical feeling like I now I know this person and I almost feel like it's because they allowed it. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because you've mentioned a couple times that your work is based on photographs and the photographs that you find and allow to inform your work tend to be from around 1880 when, when many cities had black portrait studios to World War II, which is about when black portrait studios and actually probably studios, photographic studios writ large began to decline. Obviously, although, you know, having said that, I remember my parents dragging me to one in the 1970s. So yeah, the, the few of them around, yeah right? me too. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're obviously inventing and creating what your figures are wearing. So you're not being anything close to mechanical and you're carrying those photographs forward. 
So I think I'm asking is what types of things do you look for in a photograph from 1890 or whatever that you think you can or want to try to to translate into textile? When I'm looking at a vintage photo, and I think I must have, it's a crazy amount already as it is. I think it must be, I don't even want to say, I think it's something like 7,000 photos. Because there's so many databases that are online, not even public databases. We've got the National Archives, the, um, oh my gosh, the Smithsonian Archives were recently opened up to me by one of the curators there, different colleges and university archives. But I'm looking for an emotional connection. And all of my pieces Originally, they started out that I was making portraits of my family members. I did my grandparents. I did a a portrait of my grandfather, who I've never seen, my father's father from Ghana. He died in about, must have been something like 1945, and there were no photographs of him. So I wanted to create what I thought was what he may have looked like. So even now, when I'm looking at photos I remember the photos that I grew up with looking in my grandmother's photo albums from New Orleans. That was where she was born and raised, and my mother was born there as well. I'm looking for the connection of family. So while the photos that I find now, they're not my family members, they're not any known relation to me, I'm looking for that familiarity and the connection. And so all the photos that I create now, I almost feel like it's just a photo album. I'm just extending that to my wider um, family in the Black diaspora. And because I have living relatives in Africa, and I just said living because most African-Americans, you're going to have a relative on the continent. You just may not know that person. Or my cousins are actually like here. Some of them just came here a few years ago or some have been here since the 60s, like my own dad. And I'm looking for that familiar familiar connection. And it's something intangible as well, because it's not always a set thing. But you'll notice like a lot of my figures, they're looking directly at the viewer, which would be the photographer at the time. And if I find a photo of someone and they're not looking at the viewer, I actually would just change the gaze so that they are. I like the idea that we're examining them in this photo, but they're examining us right back. And the assessment is going both ways. I'm interested in their life, but they're also interested in our life now, what's going on now. And that means that anybody who comes across one of my quilts, hopefully that the figure is also examining them the same way. And they feel that. And it kind of is a it's really cool And amazing to me that people do feel that. I've had people have very emotional responses when they see my work. Sometimes they start crying. Sometimes they're just like kind of speechless. Uh, There's a woman who bought a quilt that I had done. It's a portrait of my father. And he he actually allowed me to sell that one, though. I wasn't just (laughs) selling off his. (laughs) He told me that I could sell it and... The woman who bought that piece, I did hear that she's she's actually suffering from cancer now and that looking at the piece is one of the things that gives her some happiness and some solace. And I love my dad so much. I've always been a daddy's girl. 
I'm sure he'll be listening to this podcast as well when it airs. And it's just amazing to me that she could feel that in the quilt. And so I'm looking for that connection in a vintage photo, something that sparks a connection with me, something that I can say, like, I feel like I understand this person and that I could do this some justice. Most of the people you are bringing into your quilts from those photographs are people you do not know, of course, inevitably, with 7,000 photographs. There is, of course, the odd exception. The most recognizable exception is you've, you've made a Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass is the most photographed American man of the 19th century. There is no one who would not immediately know that in this sea of unknown people or just kind of, you know, vernacular photographs from which you've pulled people, there's no one who wouldn't immediately see Frederick Douglass and go, oh, Frederick Douglass. You know, why not so much did you make a Frederick Douglass, but why were you willing to break your rule to make a Frederick Douglass? I think as I started getting deeper into the vintage photos and coming across older and older photos, you know, like you said, 1880, and then, then I came across photos of enslaved people in 1870s. Then I came across a photo of Frederick Douglass Young, and it really struck me. It almost was like, well, his presence is so commanding, and I felt like he demanded it almost. It was like I couldn't look away. And I realized that there was so much about Frederick Douglass that I had just kind of glossed over. I just thought about the elder statesman, Frederick Douglass, the abolitionist, the uh, the gentleman orator who, you know, was admonishing white America at the time and the world, just castigating slavery and demanding that his people be free. But I never thought about Frederick Douglass as like this young, wild, not wild, but fierce looking guy. This really good looking guy. <laughs> yeah, let's and be, a really good looking guy. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's, you know, gorgeous. <laughs> Super handsome, commanding, and dapper. He had on like this silk brocade vest, and I could see paisleys, and he had on this, each photo I saw, there were all these like intricate cravats, but they were all different. So I was like, oh, Frederick Douglass was like a dapper dude who really cared about fashion. And so that, I felt like he stopped me when I was, you know, perusing photos and was like, hey, young lady, like, take a look at what I put out here. <laughs> and, and I did. I just, I had to. There was just, it was just under this undeniable pull that I had to create that piece. We talked a little bit about Barclay Hendricks a moment ago, and, and there are other artists about whom you've spoken a lot as being useful and helpful to you, Faith Ringgold, for example. But I want to ask you about two Afro-Cobra artists, two Chicago area artists. And I'm not sure which of these two to ask about first. So I'll start with Jay, with Jay Jarrell, who's on one hand, whose work looks nothing like yours. But on the other hand, who made textile primary at a time when only a handful of American artists were using textile. I mean, there, there, there was more textile going on in Europe, but not, not here. 
So I wonder what you have found and still find in, in, in Jay Jarrell and indeed if whether or not her work, this is a hokey phrase, but kind of gave you permission to go ahead. I, I would say most definitely. I mean, like her husband, Wadsworth Jarrell. Oh, oh, we're getting there. <laughs> okay. Taught at Howard with me. So that influence was there. But when I discovered her work, it for sure, it finally like, it really solidified and tied in like my love for fashion and textiles did not have to be separate because I was making clothing for myself, but I found myself not interested in the fashion world. And I mean, and working in the fashion world and going into that field, that really wasn't it. And I found myself somewhere in between and she was such a kindred spirit. I also love like that her fashion design her art was revolutionary at the same time you know I love that I think it's like a bolero it's like a a clip that I guess would be bullets but but she has I think they're either crayons or like paint tubes yeah they got little they got little bursts of color on the end so you can't miss yeah (laughs) and I actually did get to speak to her I think when her show opened Soul of the Nation when it opened in Brooklyn and so I just got to like kind of fangirl and ask her, you know, about her schooling and where her initial like sparks came from connecting fashion, art, fibers and working with Afrocobra. And I will say that again, like something that really fascinated me and gave me permission about J. Jarrell was that she was a, mo- a mother of two and I'm a mother of two and it's always been it was difficult when my children were little, you know, to take the time, to find time to make art, to do something that didn't seem to be obviously just for your children. And I love that she was able to work at her career, be respected in her medium and still be an attentive and present mom. Wadsworth Jarrell in his work builds skin whether it's an arm or a face or what have you, with bursts of color, not kind of in a fauve way, but in a way that that builds volume and color and life and movement and volume, and I mean volume like loudness, all, all at once. And it's really distinctive. I don't, like you see a Wadsworth Jarrell, and I mean, there's just nobody else that that's going to be. This is all a long way of asking if, his way of commit giving dimensionality to a face or to skin informed how you give dimensionality to a face or skin. Definitely. Wadsworth Jarrell, I felt like him being one of the people who, you know, his, his painting philosophy, I should say, definitely trickled down to all of us students in the undergrad program at Howard because Although he didn't say paint like me, do like this, but showing us how to build up layers, he his underlaying is the same that I'm doing. And the color choices that he's using, those Afrocobra intense, you know, volumetric colors, like bright red, you know, like five different shades of bright red fluorescent pink and these crazy bright yellows. And, and even the blues are kind of electric. Those are the same colors that I'm using. 
And none of the uh, painting staff, he nor any of my other professors said, these are the colors you should use, but these were the colors that they were using. And they were showing us how to lighten our palette without using white, how to make our artwork have this, this brilliance instead of sometimes when you add white, it gets lighter and it can also get duller. And so their, their thing was to show us how to make our artwork look lighter and brighter. And I learned to lighten my colors, my paints by using yellows and pinks. So you see that a lot in his work and then you also see it a lot in mine. So those echoes are still there even all these years later because I'm using colors now. They're premixed. They're fabrics, but I'm still drawn to that same set. That, that's the way I was taught. And it wasn't just about not using white because you didn't want the colors to be dull, but it was like a statement in saying, like, be that loud and proud black person, be that loud and proud person. And you don't need to dull anything down and you don't need to follow the European mindset with paint. We can use colors that we're familiar with on the African continent. You know, what are the colors that people use in their clothing and their textiles there? You know, what does the floral and the fauna look like in Africa? You're going to see more intense, bright colors. And our colors as African-Americans should reflect that. So that's what they had in the 60s in Afrocobra. And when I was in school in the 90s, they taught us that. And now here we are in the 2020s, and I'm still doing that. Fantastic. Bisa Butler, thanks so much. Oh, thank you so much, Tyler. On Saturday, November 21st, the Museum of Fine Arts Houston opens the new Nancy and Rich Kinder Building for Modern and Contemporary Art, capping a decade-long project to complete the MFAH Susan and Faya's Seraphim Campus. Visit mfah.org slash getmodern for details. Artist Mark Bradford creates monumental works of abstract painting and collage. The exhibition Mark Bradford End Papers focuses on the key material and fundamental motif Bradford employed early in his career and has returned to periodically over the past two decades, End Papers. At the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, the exhibition has been extended through January 10th. Information at themodern.org. Welcome back. Next up, the first of two segments we'll be doing this week and the week after Thanksgiving with curators at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston on their collection installations in the MFAH's new 237,000-square-foot Stephen Hall-designed Kinder Building. The museum's new building is already open to members. It opens to the general public on Saturday, November 21st. We'll be particularly spotlighting the MFAH's most nationally recognized collections, in two weeks, I'll talk with Mari Carmen Ramirez about Latin American and Latinx art at the museum. This week, it's Malcolm Daniel, Houston's curator of photography. Malcolm Daniel, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks. Happy to be here. You and the MFA have one of the finest photography collections in America, one of a handful of collections in the U.S. that can start at essentially the beginning of the medium and follow it forward into the present. And there's a good bit of that here in your first installation. 
But let's start really simply. Why did you want your first installation to include within it really a, a broad survey of the entire medium? It's really a continuation of what I've tried to do since I arrived here in 2013, which was to show the breadth of the collection. And until now, I've been hanging pictures in a glorified hallway, actually not that glorified, hanging the pictures in a hallway. And it was a history of photography uh, that would go from a daguerreotype to the present day. And that selection would include various media, would include artists from the US, from England, from France, from Germany, Japan. It would include portraits and still life and landscape and abstraction. And the idea was to show the breadth of the medium there and on the opposite wall of the hallway to do a focused look at a particular artist. And those have included Dawu Bey and Ilse Bing and Louis Baltz, a lot of bees, and Nathan Lerner and Ajay and, and others. So the idea was to show both the breadth that we had in the collection and also the depth that we had in key artists. And I have always felt that it was important to do that, that I didn't want somebody visiting the museum to think, oh, that was a nice show of portrait photographs. I guess that's what they have are portraits. I wanted people to understand that this is an encyclopedic collection within an encyclopedic museum. It's one of the things that I think is so attractive about our collection is that it's not exclusively a contemporary art collection or only American. And so that's what we're continuing in the new building. And that first installation does go from a, a, a Talbot made in 1840 right up to, to the present day. So when visitors get to your galleries in the building, they are going to see a space covered by what in the business we would call site-specific wallpaper, but which is more of a physical experience of photography made three-dimensional. What is it? Who is it by? And what is it showing us? It is a work by Jason Sullivan, who is a Chicago-based photographer who works with sort of data-driven imagery. And from a little bit of a distance, this looks almost like waterfall or cascade of, of color and, and tone on the walls. And as you get up close, you see that it's made up of 250,000 images, which are sourced from something called the ImageNet data set. And that is a, a data set of something like 14 million photographs sorted into 20,000 categories. And it's the data set that is used to train artificial intelligence. And so each of the lines of images on this wallpaper represents a category. So when you come up close, you'll see that it's a series of bulldozers or navels or hibiscus or anything, anything you can imagine. Darkest to lightest as it moves down, down the wall. And it speaks to this explosion of imagery that we live with all the time. And also the kinds of inclusions and exclusions that color our understanding of the world and are training artificial intelligence and therefore sort of feeding that loop of biases or interests or judgment that goes, goes into how the world is communicated to us. So it's, it's really exciting. I think it's going to be a crowd favorite. People just 
watching, for instance, the construction workers, um, fellow museum employees, looking at looking at it, you get sucked into all of that imagery, and then you walk into the gallery, and then there's this very select group of images that you see. As I looked through what you have installed, and we are taping this before the museum has opened, and thanks to my personal unwillingness to get on planes these days, I'm seeing everything a little more slowly than I would like to. But as I look through what you've installed, one of the things I've seen is that you are showing us over and over again what the medium can do, what people making pictures have thought photography was for at different points over the last 180 years. And so some of those answers for me looking through what you have installed are things like memory, such as in Alexander Bertrand's mid-1850s, surprisingly less creepy than you would think, post-mortem portrait of a child. The tourism with, with Platt Babbitt's great photograph of Niagara Falls, which is also one of the very earliest examples of a photographer thinking about painting. All, all of which is to say, hopefully, hopefully to say that you're not playing the greatest hits here. You're presenting a series of ideas. So how does this section of mostly 19th and very, very early 20th century work set up the medium and its coming maturity and what we'll see later on? Well, I think one of the things that always surprises me about 19th century photography, and that is where my heart, what makes my heart beat fastest, is how quickly people working with the medium understood the potential. I mean, even if you look only at Talbot, Talbot, you know, in The Pencil of Nature, published, you know, five years into the history of the medium, could envision it making a visual inventory, could, could imagine photographing architecture or portraiture, could imagine reproduction of works of art, could imagine its use in science for botanical reasons. And I think really within the first you know, couple decades, I won't say all of the potential was explored, but there was a wide sense of what the medium could do and that it was part art and part science, part documentation, part expression. And all of those threads carry through, through the history of the medium. Actually, I mean, one of the things about the series of history of photography installations that we've done and this is now the 15th, but the first one in a real gallery, is that we've taken turns doing those. So I've done some, and the current associate curator, Lisa Volpe, her predecessor, Yasufumi Nakamori, our various curatorial assistants have all taken a shot at it. And everybody goes in and finds different, different things in the collection. There are 30,000 photographs, 35,000 by now. I don't know them all, and I go looking for certain ideas or kinds of pictures or certain artists. Other people go in looking for something else because they're coming to it with a different perspective. And it's why we call it a history of photography and not the history of photography. When I do it, the 19th century usually takes up a bigger portion of the wall than when other people do. <laughs> but we're all, we're all, as you say, exploring ideas. And we try to create echoes so that by the time somebody gets to the contemporary works in that history, there's something that makes them think back. And we may not be explicit about it, but we want visitors to say, oh, that's kind of cool. It's sort of like the thing that we saw down the way and make those discoveries for themselves. 
that happens even within the 19th century section of the installation where you have, this is going to sound weird, but you have a dead child and you have a sleeping child. On the third floor of the museum in these interdepartmental galleries that we'll talk about, there are also a number of works that deal with, with memory, with loss and memory, like the Christian Boltanski. You know, before we move out of the 19th century, one of the things that I think is important about Houston opening with a tremendously strong 19th century presentation, both in numbers, but also in quality in terms of geography, is that you're opening just after one of the other American museums with a major collection of photography, particularly 19th century photography, has fired its 19th century photography curator. And after her, her boss, her, the man who hired her, resigned in protest. I'm talking of the Nelson Atkins and the departure of Jane Aspinwall and Keith Davis. And so I raised that just to say that your installation, which was determined before what Kansas City did to its photography department, could be understood by some of us as a rejoinder to what, what they're doing there. This is not to follow up that, but I'll say that the Kinder building is envisioned as a series of galleries for modern and contemporary art, and primarily 1900 to the present. But I did feel that it was important if we were telling the story of photography to begin back at the beginning. And so those works in our gallery are really the, the only things or perhaps there may be a few drawings or works of design or craft that predate 1900. But I felt that it was important to, if we were going to tell the history of photography in our departmental galleries that we start at the beginning and not start at 1900. I want to raise a couple of the themes that I think cut across your installations. One of them is there are a whole lot of pictures of American violence in your installation, just to cite five. Sally Mann's Deep South, Untitled Scarred Tree of 1998, which is Sally's most Emersonian picture, probably. Richard Misrock's Playboy 90, number 94, Ray Charles from 1991. We'll have images of these on manpodcast.com. Louise Ozell Martin's Dr. King's Casket at Morehouse College from 68. Charles Moore's very famous Police Dog Attack, Birmingham 63, and Robert Frank's 1955 car accident. Why did you want to include such a clear presentation of American violence? I'm not sure I was quite as aware of it as you've just made me <laughs> Sorry. aware. And perhaps it's something just internalized about the moment we're in. And as I think about it, there are other pictures on our walls in that same gallery that also speak to that. I think gun culture is actually a topic that we have acquired with some concentration in mm -hmm. recent years. It's, I think, you know, gun culture, issues of social justice, issues of race. These are all, they're very much in our minds just as people. And I think they inflect our collecting and they, they are places where I feel that photography and art in general can speak to our concerns and perhaps even effect some kind of social change. And, you know, again, on the third floor, there's a whole section about the U.S.-Mexico border, uh, which again deals um, to a large degree with violence, conflict, nationalism, 
issues like that. You also have a large section on portraiture. And with the exception of an Arbus and a Dorothea Lange and maybe one or two others, you seem to have consciously avoided big name blue chip photographer portraiture in favor of great images made by lesser known or, or younger photographers. Why that decision? I love it, but why that, why that yeah, decision? Just to explain the, the way it's installed, too, there are, there are two entrances to our gallery, and there's this corner between the, the two, and they have walls that are 15, 20 feet long. And on one, we have a floor-to-ceiling photo mural uh, wallpaper by Zanelli Maholi, self-portrait. That's just incredibly powerful and present. And the other wall is salon hung floor to ceiling with about uh, 45 or 50 pictures. And those were meant to really show the complete breadth of what photographic portraiture embraces from a photographic ID badge or, you know, a, a host of those two dozen photo ID badges to you know, a daguerreotype brooch or a carte de visite album to anonymous snapshots to the Mike Mandel uh, baseball cards. Of Ann uh, Tucker, your predecessor. Of Ann Tucker and, and others. <laughs> and to include Arbus and Karsh's photograph of Muhammad Ali and some other well-known ones. But it was a way to, again, show the breadth and to play with this idea of high and low and the way that photography is so ingrained in our lives and think about issues of identity as, as part of that, from the sort of literal ID photograph to images that are more about personal identity, like Jess Dugan's photograph. Lisa Volpe, associate curator, took the lead on there, and I think it's going to be a real sort of crowd favorite to, to look at that wall. There are three photographs in this kind of general area that I think you've hung, hung together. One is a small oval daguerreotype pendant of an unknown man with a ring at the top. So it could be worn, if you will. A set of nine photo booth self-portraits of the old sort where you go to a arcade or a movie theater and you pull the curtain. And I mean, I don't know, maybe those still exist. What do I know? And you've mentioned a couple of times a photo ID badge, which is quite literally a photo ID badge, you know, of, of the sort you would wear walking into the factory or, or whatever. And they're all vernacular or effectively vernacular. I mean, the photo booth ones we assume were taken by the people we're seeing, right? Why did you want to include vernacular slash unauthored pictures within a presentation that has Arbus Lang and others. We've just made a great acquisition, really big acquisition of a collection of vernacular photographs and pop photographica assembled by Barbara Levine and Paige Ramey. And it has great things in it from the works that you've just described to photographic puzzles, to vernacular albums that people have put together, to strange objects that are photographic, to photo comic books, a wide range. And again, that goes to the way that photography is so embedded in our daily lives. And so it was important to us, other than segregating that, it was important to us to mix that with the declared fine art photography, put them together and to try to break down some of those distinctions. And 
often, you know, there are great photographs by people whose identity we don't know. I mean, you know, Anonymous was a great photographer. And to look at the pictures divorced from a sense of biography of the maker and to just look at them as pictures and to try to understand them and to enjoy them. And sometimes there's a sense of humor. Sometimes there's a surprising pathos to it. Sometimes there's a formal beauty that we enjoy. You know, that idea even extends to a group of studio portraits you have installed, maybe studio-ish portraits across many decades. So whether they're carte de visite style studio portraits or on the third floor, and we're going to talk about the split in a moment, but up there, there there's a Mickling Thomas. Mm-hmm. Were you interested in, I mean, it looks like you were interested in showing how photographers have always used, been interested in, played with the idea of studio as site. Yeah, I think it is one, it's one of the, it's certainly a, a strain that it's important, and I think it has become increasingly so mm. in the contemporary age. And it is a way of reminding people that the artists, the f- photographers are making pictures, not just taking pictures, and a way to show that in, in, in an explicit way. And it ties back to the 19th century also. So, I mean, we can see that, that strain from, you know, from the beginnings of photography all the way up to the present. One of the things that the museum has done in the new building is underscored the way in which photography doesn't need to be considered on an island separate from other forms of making. I know from my non-podcast work that the way we sometimes think of photography as being separate and apart from the ideas in painting in the 1860s is incorrect. And I think anybody working on contemporary art cares very little about medium these days. Not that people don't love paintings as specific material objects or photographs as specific material objects, but you know there aren't paintings curators of the 2010s. You know, <laughs> So could you outline for us where across the MFA Houston's complex we will find photographs now and what that adds, why that is important, why that is a truthful representation of history. I think one of the things that's exciting about our new building is that we were not forced to make the choice that many museums have made recently, which was whether to keep their medium-specific galleries or get rid of those and make everything interdisciplinary or interdepartmental. There are times when photographs speak in perfect dialogue with works in other media. There are also times when it has its own history. And so this is a case where we've been able to, you know, have our cake and eat it too, that we can tell a version of photography's history in our departmental gallery on the on the second floor. And that's about 4,000 square feet of space. And then we can explore on the museum's third floor in five galleries that are arranged thematically. We can explore the, the way that photographs, painting, sculpture, design, craft, video, drawings, prints, watercolors, all can speak to one another and, and address various themes in ways unique to their, to their medium, but still tied together. There in, in the Kinder building, there are two ways to find photographs, sort of it, 
in its own space and then in thematic galleries, some of which are arranged according to formal themes. Uh, one is called color into light, the other line in space. And photography is present there, but I have to say that it's not dominant because it's just not what photography does so much of. We have, it, it's mostly dealing with abstraction. And while there are photographs that make sense there, it's not a great, there's not a primary interest of the media there. And then um, there are other themes that have to do with humor in art and photography is great there. One that has to do with uh, notions of collectivity and community. One that has to do with the U.S.-Mexico border. One with mapping and sort of data-driven creation. And another called witness, which deals with struggle, memory, loss. And then actually elsewhere in the museum, in the Beck building, is now 20 years old, we've reinstalled the American art galleries and expanded those. And there you'll find things like Charles Milton Bell's photograph of the Ponca delegation to Washington in the 1870s. Photographs of 19th century photographs of uh, African-Americans. But I think uh, curators who are working in areas outside of the Kinder building have also tried to bring that sense of mixing the media, and interdisciplinary hanging to their galleries. So often uh, there will be photographs in the Asian art galleries, in the Beck Arts galleries, or in the American art galleries. For listeners in Europe, not a ton of American museums do that. It's a quite uncommon thing. It's something I look forward to seeing in Houston when I can fly again. You know, there are two prominent areas of photography that are mostly not in your installations. And it may just be that you're not collection rich in those areas, or it may be a conscious decision. And the, the, the two that jumped out at me, well, I guess three, but you already mentioned abstraction, is collage and street photography. And I wonder if not leaning into those areas was a conscious decision or just collection driven. Collage, there's a little bit of, but not a lot. So there's a, a wonderful little Hannah Hoch and some photo montage also with, for instance, the Elisitsky Cine I abstraction we spoke about and street photography. I don't know whether it's just my own my own tendencies. We and we have, I mean, not that I would necessarily call it street photography. But I think we get close there with the Robert Frank material. There's a lot of Robert Frank. So we have a whole wall dedicated to Robert Frank, pictures from the Americans. And then in the case in front of it, we have his maquette for the Americans, uh, which Anne collected early on. Anne Tucker, my ancestor. And then open and closed editions, uh, examples of both the American, the French and American editions of the Americans, as well as a print, sort of all open to the same image there. So that has, that has a strong presence, and maybe it's because I have that focus on Frank there that I left out, say, Winogrand or... Friedlander. Uh, there's, there's, uh, there's, there's Sid Grossman there. You know, it's hard. It's interesting to me <laughs> to notice the things that you find especially present or relatively absent in our hangings because to a certain degree it's not conscious it's my conception 
intersection of the medium and what moves me personally and what interests me intellectually. And as I said before, we take turns at doing these and somebody else will come with a different perspective and the hanging will look quite different, I think. And we're talking early. I mean, after you open, you're going to have 83 people like me telling you what they <laughs> notice. <laughs> that, this, this is what I, I find exciting. And per, I think particularly about photography is that there are so many ways into the medium and it's such a prolific medium. And I love that so many people will come and find connections that speak to them or that I may or may not have been conscious of. It may have been just been a reflection of my own take on the moment. And it may have been unconscious rather than conscious. And, and one of the great things about photography is for technical reasons, we know that once somebody throws stuff up on a wall that it's going to come down three months later, whereas with paintings gallery. Or yeah, you know, what, you, know, you know what I mean. But, you know, it's not like with a paintings gallery where somebody will put it up and it'll be there six years later. There's yeah. an expected turnover. Yeah, and when we have, you know, tens of thousands of photographs, you want to pull different things out and get them up there, not only for conservation reasons, but also just to have a changing perspective. Yeah. You have a couple dozen works of video art up within your galleries. I'm not going to name them all because that would take the next five minutes. I mean, there are really that many. Why did you want to include what almost functions as a survey of the video media within your spaces? Well, there isn't any other place in the building where we have something like a black box. I don't really like a black box. I'm calling this more of a gray box. I hate the idea. I hate that experience of where you part the curtains and you walk in and you take tiny little steps because you're afraid you're going to step on somebody or trip over a stool until your eyes adjust. The equipment now, the projectors and screens and stuff are, are strong enough that we can have ambient light and be comfortable. So there's no, but there's no other place. There are works on monitors in other galleries. There are early William Wegman videos playing. There's the great Fishley and Vice, The Way Things Go. And there are other works shown on monitors in other galleries. But we didn't have a place where we could show projected videos effectively. And they're not all from uh, the Department of Photographs. Some are from Latin American or from the modern art, modern contemporary. Or, or Latin. It's all one collection, ultimately. And what I've done is to put together a program that's about an hour and 45 minutes that includes 16 pieces that range from a minute to 15 minutes. And those will loop throughout the day. And I think it's, it's just so connected to photography. At least what interests me in video art is quite connected to photography. I've tended to collect and be interested in works that are that are closer to photography than cinema. So generally non-narrative works where you could come in at any point and leave at any point, you know, not always, but often. So, you know, not, not Matthew Barney, but yes, you know, Christian Markley or something. So it's an area we have been collecting in our department increasingly. We don't have great depth in it. In this case, 
a good number of the works that we're showing are on loan from one of our trustees who was more uh, adventurous and prescient than we were in terms of collecting video art. Uh, that's Jerry Ann Cheney. But I think it's something that is exciting and particularly more and more in the, in, in the age of the internet, there's, it just seems like the, the screen or the moving image is, is, is a part of what photography does. I mean, you know, our, our iPhones take video as easily as they take still photographs. And it just seems like we move increasingly in that direction. I wanted to be able to show that. Finally, one of the things that an intense collection installation, especially kind of a big debut installation, can do is lead curators to think through what they don't have yet, what their departmental and institutional collections lack. So has installing, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of photographs led you to some ideas or conclusions about what you'd like to add, what you need? Yeah, I would say uh, not necessarily the process of installing, but thinking about this building over the past half dozen years or more, I certainly have been trying to build our contemporary photography collection. Uh, my predecessor, Ann Tucker, built you know, a really world-class collection. Its greatest strengths were, I would say, in the heart of the 20th century. And which isn't to say that she didn't collect contemporary because she did. And there were great 19th century things in the Manfred Heiting collection, which Anne acquired in 2002 and 2004. But for me, since I arrived here seven years ago, I've been trying to build the bookends to strengthen that 19th century, but also to acquire major works of contemporary photography. And it was really, I think, for Anne, really a question of resources you know, just weren't available. So I came in with a kind of desiderata list that I've been chipping away at. And in, in another gallery in our photography suite, sort of adjacent to the history of photography, there's a room with 10 major works of contemporary photography that include Laurie Simmons and Sarah Charlesworth and Thomas DeMond, Thomas Struth, Stan Douglas, Barbara Probst, Manjari Sharma, Guang Yu Shu, a young photographer, and Damon Sauer and Julia Nam, another younger group. But these are large-scale, you know, important contemporary works. And that's where I've been trying to build our collection. And more of those are up on the third floor as well. And I still have a Desiderata list, which I continue to chip away at, thanks to the generosity of our our trustees and our endowments and our director, we've been able to make important acquisitions. And I got to say, you have A-plus examples of each of those living, I think they're all living artists you yeah, just mentioned. I mean, they're, they're all pretty, we'll have an image, for example, of the Struth up on manpodcast.com. It's full-scale mock-up, three JSC, Johnson Space Center, Houston. And it's, you know, one of his best science pictures. So that's pretty neat to see. Thanks. Malcolm Daniel, thank you. Thank you, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.